1: All right, good morning. And Merry Christmas. Can I still say Merry Christmas? Is yeah. that okay? I can still say Merry Christmas. Okay. Merry Christmas. Um, so this morning, hey, if you could keep me in your prayers, I, uh, I think I'm battling a head cold all of a sudden. I'm trying not to sniff. And I tweaked my lower back trying to prove to high school basketball players that I was still better than them, yeah. which was arrogant and foolish. And so my back is, uh, is quite a bit stiff and I'm going to be sniffing a little bit. So we're going to trust that God can move despite that and that I won't look uh, in pain up here on the stage. Does that sound good? Merry Christmas. Um, I'm glad that we made it here this morning. Um, and on a, on a personal note, I realized uh, a couple months ago, Pastor Albert asked me if I could preach on December 30th. And it all of a sudden struck me that I actually was the guest preacher here at Region on December 31st uh, last year. Um, I, I knew a few of you and I knew Albert, and he asked me to jump in because everyone was out of town on December 31st, so I came and preached um, a year ago. Um, and now a year later, um, I know many of you, or most of you, and I get to be um, your associate pastor. Um, but I tell that story because this Advent season is one of believing in hope, amen? Of, of believing in that God can do anything, and, it's, it's, and it's, it's waiting in expectation for God to do something. Um, so I told that story that a year ago, I did not think I would be standing here Uh, almost one year to the day, preaching again the last Sunday, but now as your associate pastor. I didn't think that would happen, but we don't know what things God has in store for us in 2019, but God has good things in store for us. So be of good cheer. Have hope. Um, God can do anything in this new year. God can open doors that you couldn't imagine in this next year um, of life here on earth. Um, I'm going to say a prayer for us again as we jump into this message. Father, we are here, and I don't know what each one of us went through this week. If we had an amazing Christmas, if we had a lonely Christmas, God, I I don't know. But God, I know that you love us, and I know that you offer us hope, and you offer us salvation, and you offer us meaning and purpose in life. Um, This morning, as we pause one more time to remember the birth of our Savior, God, may your Spirit speak to us. Would you say something to us, would you encourage us, would, you, would your spirit nudge us, God, where we need to be nudged and encourage us where we need to be encouraged. God, may you speak this morning, um, in Jesus' name, amen. So Christmas, I know we're all used to it being Christmas season, um, and, and we've been celebrating Christmas for a while, some of us, we've had a lot of Advent messages, um, and if you live in America, you hear a lot about Christmas, right, so we're, we're kind of, maybe we're even over Christmas But I want to think about it from a historical perspective and kind of step back. Think about how amazing it is that over 2,000 years ago, a baby was born in a small town in the Middle East. Okay, a long time ago, a baby was born. And the people around the baby, some of them knew something beautiful was happening, some of them really didn't know what was happening. But a baby was born in a small town amongst some animals. Then some shepherds came, um, and he had these two parents who were trying to figure things out, and this baby was born. And now, all these years later, we still celebrate this, right? And we think about it, and we reflect on it, and we study it, and we think about how it has changed the course of human history and the world history. This moment in time where a, a little human being was born that was actually God. And we think about it, all these years later, we still we still reflect and wrestle and get inspiration and salvation from this moment in time where a baby was born in this little town called Bethlehem among some animals and some people around that had to figure out what are we doing here and how do we contribute to the fact that the Savior is being born amongst us. This morning, we're going to take a quick review of some of the characters in this story. So, for the last four weeks, Pastor Albert and I have gone through some characters, so I'm going to review some of those characters and then talk about the magi um, this morning in the story. And as we review the story, I want to ask you to do a couple things. Um, one of them is to try to think about the fact that this story is crazy. And when I say crazy, I mean in a beautiful way, in a fascinating way, in a way of God working in humanity in messy ways. But when you step back from this story, this is a wild, crazy, dangerous story. People trying to make sense of impossible circumstances. Um, God using all sorts of different characters for God's purposes in this story. This is a really weirdly beautiful, amazing story of how God works in humanity. Um, I also want to point out that this story is dangerous. There is violence in the middle of this story. There is danger in the middle of this story for the people who are involved in the story. There is an empire, the Roman Empire, in their midst. There is an evil ruler, King Herod, in their midst. This story is dangerous, and it's messy, and it's bloody, this story. And as we go through it, I want to ask you even now to think about what character in the story do you identify with? Or what character do you find inspiration from? What character do you somehow resonate with 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 what God is doing in your own life right now, okay? Um, So let's start off with Zachariah and Elizabeth. Pastor Albert spoke about them a few weeks ago. Zachariah and Elizabeth, they are an older couple, he's a priest, and they don't have a child. And in their culture and their civilization, not having a child was a thing of, of shame, It was not dignified to not have a child. Something must be wrong with them. They're an old couple. Zechariah is a priest. He's performing his priestly duties. He's going to burn incense, and he ends up face-to-face with an angel all by himself in the middle of the temple, and I'm going to pick up uh, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, "'How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years.'" That's like a nicer way of saying old. And my wife is well along in years, but I'm old. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. So now this old man who hears this great news, he doesn't react very well. He doesn't react with great faith the way that Mary does and Joseph and others do. So, he immediately can't speak, and he has to walk out of the temple, all excited about the fact that they're going to have a baby, but he can't talk. And he's a priest. So, he has to like, make hand motions and write things down, and he has to somehow convey that his name will be John. But this older couple has this incredible news they will have a child. Uh, Elizabeth is pregnant, the, the, the cousin of Mary. Um, and they get to be the parents of John the Baptist, who prepares the way for Jesus. So we've got this this old couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth, with a a miraculous baby of their own. And then we've got Joseph. I got to preach about Joseph a couple weeks ago. Some call him Joseph the Just. He was a carpenter. He was probably between the ages of 17 and 20. He was betrothed. He was promised um, to marry. Um, He was just a normal, good guy. And when we say carpenter in the Bible, that probably meant more like in our days a construction worker or a blue collar worker. Like don't imagine somebody who built fancy cabinets for big money. Imagine somebody who would go out and work with their hands um, every day uh, to just barely provide for their family. And Joseph betrothed to this young girl (laughs) is all of a sudden told that yeah this girl you're about to marry she's already pregnant but don't worry it's the Holy Spirit's baby and just go ahead and marry her. And like, and we've heard it so many times that we just take it that it makes sense, but, but we talked to a couple weeks ago, imagine being Joseph, and this girl you're about to marry is pregnant already, and you have to somehow tell your family about this, and your friends about this, and the whole town is going to know about this, and what do you do from this point? But Joseph just does exactly as God tells him in that moment, and then later when in a dream he is told, hey, get up, get the baby, get your family, and take off to Egypt, because you're in danger. And he says, okay. So he gets up, he does exactly as he's told by the angel again and again. And Joseph has this role as this earthly father of Jesus, who has this special role in the story. And then we talked about Mary. Uh, Mary, who was probably between the ages of 12 and 14, just a normal girl getting ready to be married uh, in an arranged marriage, and an angel appears to her. I'm going I'm to read from Luke I just want to pause there. This, like, we just read this like for granted. But imagine it. Mary is greatly troubled. Of course, She is greatly troubled, and an angel appears to her and starts saying this stuff. And she wonders what kind of greeting this is. But the angel says to her, "'Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High.'" The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary said. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. I just want to pause on on two phrases from there. First of all, in verse 29, it says, Mary was greatly troubled. She was greatly troubled at first when she's told this. We, We think of Mary and we remember her rightly for being heroic, for being this amazing young woman who God uses. But in the beginning of the story, we just hear, Mary was greatly troubled. What in the world is going on? There's an angel appearing to me, talking to me, telling me I'm going to be pregnant. Mary was greatly troubled. But then just a couple verses later, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. So Mary goes from being greatly troubled to a couple verses later saying, I am God's servant. Whatever God wants, I'm, I, okay, I, I'll accept this. Like, count me in to be a part of this story in the way that God is calling me to be. And Mary is this courageous, heroic figure who has this special place, who gets to give birth to the true king um, for all eternity. But this girl, Mary, you know, we remember that story, but then right after that, um, after being told she's pregnant, she has to take a long trip for a census because the Roman Empire says you have to go and be counted. So she has to take a long trip. She gets there, they have nowhere great to stay, gives birth to Jesus in just a humble house surrounded by animals. But then a little while after that, along with Joseph, she has to get up in the middle of the night with Jesus and flee to Egypt to keep Jesus safe. So Mary has this wonderful part of the story, but she also, ongoing, has to face difficult, painful things. Fleeing for her life as the mother of a maybe one or two-year-old is not something most of us would want to go through or go through on a regular basis. She went through this, and she plays this role in God's story. So today we finally get to um, the Magi, and I'm excited to talk about the Magi because I think they're maybe the most understood and almost strangest characters in the story, and and we hear about them, but like who were these Magi really? So I'm going to read again Matthew 2, 1 through 12. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. When you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Herod is a horrible person, but he's very smart and tricky. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So first of all, who were these people? Like, we see the art pieces of them, and I love the art of them, and they always have fancy clothes, right? They always have fancy clothes and dignified hats, and they're on camels. And sometimes they at least have darker skin, which is more accurate, because most of the other pictures usually have more Eurocentric art. But there's these, who are they? And, w- and we hear them called wise men. You've probably heard them called magi. You've probably heard them called kings from different translations. So as we dig into it, um, I immediately started studying this, and I remembered when I was in fourth grade, I went to a Christian school, and I was told that I had to be the lead in the school play about Christmas, and I had to play the shepherd boy, Jesse. Now, I was a shy fourth-grade boy, but they told me that's what I had to do. And I had to sing and have long monologues and dialogues on a stage in front of a big crowd as Jesse the shepherd boy in the school play. Um, But what I remember about this, and then later I was horrified for the next 15 years because my parents would drag out the VHS tape at Christmas time. So imagine being like 18 and you go home from college and your parents for like Christmas. Let's bring out the Jesse the Shepherd Boy VHS. I'm like, Mom, please put the VHS away. I don't ever want to hear a fourth grade version of myself sing a song ever (laughs) again. And now it's seared into my brain. But the story is seared into my brain. And in that story, in the play, we had three wise men, because that's what you do. And they were named Gaspar, Balthazar, and Melchior. So I can still remember lines of talking to Gaspar, Balthazar, and Melchior in my school play in fourth grade, and they had names. Um, But it's interesting, because looking back on this, actually, those three names, um, there's a whole mythology and kind of things built on the fact of these wise men that's not historical at all. It's just people throughout history thought it was a good story, and they kept kind of adding to the story, and they gave them names And actually, actually, there weren't even necessarily probably three wise men, okay? So there's three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But all the art has the three wise men, right? So all we know is that there were three gifts. We don't know if there were two of them or three of them or 12 of them. I was talking to Pastor Albert. Some scholars think maybe a few hundred of them of the wise men. Um, But we know that they came from the east and they brought something. Now, the, the Greek word translated wise men or magi is M-A-G-O-I. Um, so a better translation in English is magi. And a magi was someone who really was an astrologer or an astronomer. It was people who were learned, um, and they would study the stars. So they weren't necessarily kings. Or they were po- possibly wise to some extent, but they were um, astrologers from the east. They were probably from Persia, Babylonia, or maybe Arabia. Okay, Um, so they're studying the stars, and what's interesting about that is, if you are Matthew and you're building a case for Jesus being the Savior, it's really fascinating that Matthew would include some astrologers from a foreign land as an important part of the story. Like, it doesn't make sense. Like, if you were making this up to impress a Jewish audience, you would not include some foreigners who didn't know the true God, who came somewhere from the east, They were pagans, essentially, came from the east, and they were astrologers, and that they came and had a, that's just not how you would write the story, trying to impress some good Jewish people. Um, A good Jewish boy and girl would know, you don't believe in astrology, number one, we believe in the Torah, and someone who's not Jewish being a part of the story is really odd. This is one of those things that even reinforces the fact, this is a fascinating story, God uses characters that we wouldn't probably choose if we were writing the story. So on one hand, reinforces the fact of, wow, these things really happened. You would not make it up this way. And also reinforces the fact that God uses all sorts of people, amen? God uses all sorts of people for God's purposes. Men and women, learned and unlearned, poor and rich, All sorts of people get used in God's stories for God's purposes, for God's salvation. But these magi study stars, and we don't know exactly how they figured it out. I actually found a book in the Regen Library about the magi and the stars, and it's 200 pages of charts of a a Harvard scientist trying to prove that he figured out what star they were following. And it looks like gibberish to me. I literally was so excited I found it, and then it makes, it's just these scientific star charts like for 200 pages. And I finally got to the f- I was trying to read it but it was just too boring and too scientific for me. I didn't I'm not smart enough to understand it. But we do know they came from the east and we do know historically that gold, frankincense and myrrh are what you would give to a king. Those were kingly gifts that you would bring. They were important gifts that you would give to a king. And we do know that for some reason they studied and for some reason they knew something was happening in the stars and for some reason they traveled a very long way. And then they get there and they have this interaction with this fascinating character named Herod. Now I don't know if you know a lot about Herod or a little bit about Herod, He is one of the most fascinating and evil and shrewd people in all the narrative um, of scripture. And so they get there, and it seems that the Magi really probably didn't know that much about Herod, because it seems like they're naively going to Herod and really just saying, hey, we want to go find this king. Can, you, can we collaborate on this and go find this king? And they, it seems that they, they didn't know that Herod was trying to trick them. Um, they were really just going. So Herod says, hey, hey, guys, it's great you're here. Why don't you just go find this little king and then come back and tell me, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to worship him too. Um, It seems the Magi didn't really understand what was happening. Um, I'm going to read verses 10, 11, and 12 and talk about the Magi a little more. So when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. In going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And I want to look at this phrase, first, when they found the house, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's a wordy sentence, isn't it? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy when they saw Jesus. These people from a foreign land, something clicked for them. They didn't just come as wise men or dignitaries and give their gifts and say, okay, we want to respect you, It says, they've rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And I've been thinking about this phrase, thinking of the fact that when we think about Jesus being born, we've heard the story so many times, do we think about Jesus and do we rejoice exceedingly with great joy? Like when I read this, I yearn to be in a space where I can think about Jesus who offers us hope, who offers us salvation, who was born, and I want to rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Take it out of my modern scientific head who's heard the story too many times and rejoice exceedingly with great joy when I encounter Jesus. Amen? I want to rejoice exceedingly with great joy over Jesus and the Christmas story. And the second thing I want to focus on is, it says, they fell down and worshiped him. Now I want you to, again, think about these art pieces. They they always look very noble in the art pieces, right? They look so dignified. Um, And just like these stoic expressions, um, riding, riding on their camels to Jesus. But then this says, number one, they had this incredible joy, and then it says that they fell down and worshipped him. It doesn't say they very kindly knelt and and handed the gift and left. It says they fell down and worshipped him. And we don't know exactly what that looked like or exactly why they did that. Like were they traveling to find this king in a dignified way and then at some point they realized something was happening? Like did, did God's spirit open their eyes to who this baby was? Did they, did they kind of you know figure something out from stars that doesn't make sense to us? And then God, we don't know how this worked but we do know they saw Jesus and they fell down and they worshiped Jesus. This doesn't sound dignified or formal, like a formal presentation to a king. They fell down and they worshiped Jesus. And I want to be like that, don't you? I want to be like that when when I I think about God and I think about Jesus and the story and that I have this part of me that doesn't care what anybody thinks anymore. I don't care about being dignified. I don't care about sounding smart. And that I can just fall down and worship Jesus with abandon. Amen? And just, I'm going to fall down and worship him. And for some of us that have been around Christianity a long time, and we know the stories, sometimes it can be harder and harder for us to come with fresh eyes and say, I believe in this God, and this is amazing. And I'm just going to fall down and worship, and sing, and worship this God who loves me, who is here for me. I want to be a little more like that. I'm going to read Philippians 2, because there's these echoes of this idea of kneeling and falling down at the feet of Jesus. Philippians 2 echoes this. It's a beautiful passage. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Hear this part. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow from the Magi until now, that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, amen? Amen. So now back to our story. So Matthew 2, 12, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So I want to pause and think about this. So the Magi, they somehow find Jesus. They, they have joy. They worship Jesus. And then it says they're warned in a dream. And it doesn't say the whole dream. Like for Joseph and Mary, we get, a, we get a bigger picture of what this looked like, of what an angel looked like. It just says they were warned in a dream not to go to Herod. So they go another way. So they basically say, forget you, Herod. We're not going to go back. We've been warned. We're going to go back home a totally different route. Now, I want to think about what this would be like for them. Now, was this five or seven or twelve wise men with, with a few guards or friends with them? Or was it a larger group? We we don't know. But we do know that Herod was a ruthless, powerful king. And he had a lot of soldiers. He built a lot of things over the course of his life that are, if you go to Israel today, there are so many huge spaces you look at and that's Herod's this and that's Herod's that. He built this, he had that built, he had that built. He got a lot of stuff done and he had a lot of power and he was crazy. And I mean crazy and like a full-on mentally ill. The older he got, he killed more people around him. So first it was, he killed a couple sons around him. He killed a couple people who wanted to take his throne. As the older he got, The more people he killed, his wife, sons, cousins, anybody around him who maybe could have ever whispered they wanted his throne, he just kept having people killed the older he got. He was not somebody you wanted to mess with, Was what I'm trying to say. And he had a lot of power, and he had a lot of people who did whatever he said. And the magi are supposed to go right back to him, which isn't all that far, and report back to Herod and his people what they had seen. And instead the Magi say, no, we're just going to go home a different route. We're not going to do what the king of this place says. And we don't know if the army's going to come get us. We don't know if Herod is going to lose his mind and send everybody to come get us. But we are going to not do what Herod says. We're actually going to go the other way and we just worshiped this Jesus, this real king. So we're going to take off and not do what we're supposed to do from the kind of king of this place. So they take off another way. And now they're a part of this story. These, these wise men who worshiped, and then they didn't obey Herod, and they went um, to protect Jesus. They went another way, so Herod wouldn't know who Jesus was. Matthew 2.16, I'm going to read what Herod did. This was not in my fourth grade school play. This was probably not what we talk about with our kids at Christmas time very often, um, but this is a part of the story, okay? Matthew 2.16, then Herod When he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So in church history, where we remember this is called the massacre of the innocents. Some church traditions honor this on either December 28th or January 6th, sometime after Christmas. Uh, Many traditions remember this and have ceremonies around the massacre of the innocents. And I share that to remind us that throughout history, God is working, and God is fulfilling his promises, and God is saving, and God is healing, God is moving, and throughout history there is evil in our midst. There are evil rulers here just like there are today. There is violence and destruction and pain here, just like there are today. And in the story, God uses all sorts of seemingly random people for his purposes in the middle of this messy life. There's a big idea for this morning, and it's that this Christmas story shows how unlikely people become heroes in God's story, and that we all have a role to play. So in this story... There are women and girls and men and boys. We didn't even talk about the shepherds, probably shepherd boys out in the fields as a part of the story. There were rich and poor, magi from far away, Jews and Gentiles, an old couple who hasn't had a baby yet, one of who's a priest. And God uses all of these people in different ways to play a part in this real Christmas story. And God uses many of them to actually save the life of the Son of God multiple times, as Jesus' life is put in jeopardy um, multiple times. So I wanna ask you a couple of uh, reflection questions. One of them is, which one of these characters do you resonate with? So think about these different characters and the role that they played in the birth and the life of Jesus. Which one of those characters do you you resonate with or, or identify with in this true Christmas story? And then I want to ask you to wrestle with, what is the role that God is calling you to? These folks that we've all looked at, these normal, different people, they all had an important role to play in the Christmas story. And I would say that as we move forward in our story, God's story is still going. The narrative is still being written. We are alive. Jesus is alive And we have a chance to play a role in God's ongoing story. Amen? We, these humans who have heard of this Jesus from 2,000 years ago, and we worship him, and we believe in him, and we follow him, and we find salvation and hope in this Jesus, we are called to have our own role to play. Men and women, rich and poor, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, we are called to step into God's story and play a role. And there may be danger in it and there may be fear in it and there may be discomfort in it and there may be stepping out into things that are, are hard to be a part of God's story and things that take taking risks and things that take faith to step into. But I would ask you this morning, what is the role that God is calling you into in 2019? And it could be a huge life shift and it could be someone that God's put on your heart to pray for or care for. Someone to reach out to, someone to love. But what is God calling you to? What, is there a little nudge or a little tap somewhere in your spirit where God is nudging you and saying, here's a door that I'm going to open for you to be a part of God's kingdom. Here is a way that I'm inviting you to be a part of what I'm doing on the earth in 2019 in Oakland in the Bay Area. As we still have a chance to worship Jesus and we still have a chance to, to be people who fight for goodness and truth and justice and salvation and to speak of Jesus and to tell people about Jesus and to call people into peace and hope and truth that we have in Jesus. What is God calling you into in the next year? Would you pray with me? We'll move into a time of worship in a moment. God, would you speak to us? God, these stories are familiar for many of us, but God, would your spirit speak to us God, reveal to us what you would have us do. As we worship you, as we fall on our faces before you in worship, God, would you call us into the adventure? Would you invite us into the role that we have to play this morning? Would you give us courage to step into the doors that you open for us? That we could be your hands and feet on this earth. That we could speak of you. That we could love others in your name that we could speak of your hope and your love and your mercy to the people around us on this earth. God, would you use us as your story keeps going? Amen.